Thank you so much for tuning into the Psychology Is podcast. This podcast is available on all the platforms for the most part, audio only on Spotify and Apple, visual and audio on YouTube. I am just in love with this process and I'm here to introduce yet another just brilliant person. Dr. Joel Wong, welcome and thank you for joining me. It's just a pleasure to be here. Yeah, when I say I'm in love with this process, I really, you know, I'll share that my friend Robert and I collaborated on making a YouTube channel and we started just making short educational entertaining psychology videos, which we continue to do. But then the podcast thread emerged kind of, I don't even know, organically. I didn't even necessarily set an intention to start a podcast, but I was compelled to have a long form conversation with someone and then someone else and then someone else. And we're almost at 40 episodes now by the time I'm talking to you. Great. And it's just been enriching for me. And yeah, so today, let me let me introduce Dr. Wong to our listeners. Tenured associate professor in the counseling and counselor education and counseling psychology programs at Indiana University. Research interests include Asian and Asian American mental health, the psychology of men and masculinities, and positive psychology. And those are the three main topics of today's conversation, really. Mental health, particularly for the Asian and Asian American community, and then positive psychology, and then what it means to be a man, what it means to be masculine in the psychology of, of men as you understand it. So is there anything else you'd like to add about yourself and your background or bio? No, nope, you covered it really well. Thank you. Okay. Then let me launch into my first question. I'll, I'll add, speaking of the process that I'm falling in love with, part of that is some critique and self-analysis and watching a game film of myself as the host of this podcast and seeing all oh, so many ways that I can improve. And one of the ways I think I can improve is just asking questions more directly without sharing all of my thoughts that led to the question sometimes. So here's my first direct question. What is the importance of using masculinities as a plural word? Yeah, that's a, a really good question. Um, I think in in um, popular discourse, you know, when you talk to people, um, so lay people, not academics, um, you won't really hear the term masculinities being thrown around a lot. It's it's really something currently something that sort of exists um, in the area of academia. Um, but that's something that we hope would eventually uh, be, be picked up by, by lay people. Um, and, and the idea of referring to masculinities rather than masculinity uh, using the plural form is a recognition that there is no single meaning of masculinity. What does it mean to be a man? Uh, differs not only across individuals, in, in other words, there's some um, differences 
um, idiosyncrasies even among people, but it also differs across cultural groups, differs across racial groups and other forms of social groups. Um, and that difference in, in the meaning of masculinity is both internally as well as externally, internally in the sense of how people think about uh, masculinity, what does it mean to be masculine, mm-hmm. but also externally in terms of kind of social norms that are projected or what the me- how the media portrays them that could differ across uh, societies. Mm-hmm. That's a very important point that we think it's important for um, lay people to understand. You know, when you say, oh, that's so macho or well, that's masculine, that's, that's a contested thing. It, it's different across people. Mm. I would even encourage watchers and listeners to kind of ask yourself the question, who do I know that is very masculine? Right. And then just kind of see what, who pops into your mind and then look at what qualities they embody. And that might be indicative of the definition of masculinity that you've knowingly or unknowingly embraced. I think that's a good exercise because it's not always easy to expose our own conditioning and to realize what these um, schemas are that we integrate into our mind. So let me ask you this. What are, what are some examples of depictions of masculinity across different cultures or meanings associated with masculinity across different cultures? Yeah. Um, I think a, a good example can, comes from research that I've done um, both in the United States well, as well as um, um, other countries. So one example that comes to my mind is um, a study that I did in uh, the country of Singapore, um, looking at Singapore and college students, uh, kind of understanding of uh, social norms concerning, you know, uh, what does it mean to be masculine? Um, and, and you, I just want to put it out there that there are actually many similarities. Uh, so uh, aspects of one, one, one interesting feature that comes up uh, was that to be masculine is not to be feminine. And that's, 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 that's consistent with what you see here um, also in the U.S. Uh, but there were also some differences um, uh, in the U.S. Um, aggression and violence is sometimes associated, I would say, been often associated with um, masculinities, you know, uh, the dominant forms of masculinities in the U.S. Um, and interestingly, in, in the study that we, we did in Singapore, uh, to not be violent was considered um, mm-hmm. a That's feature of, of what it means to be a man. So, so there again, you, you see some kind of some, some differences there. Um, there well, I just have to say, not to interrupt you, but that, okay. that really hit me. That really yeah. hit me. That's, yeah. yeah. So in Singapore, you, you found that being nonviolent Yes. associated with yeah. masculinity yeah. and in the u.s yeah i, I agree that yeah. violence and aggression is a dominant form of masculinity yeah. that yeah. really affects me because frankly i just had this feeling of like being even more of a man yeah <laughs> when i adopted that for a moment yeah. and because i'm a non-violent person so yeah. anyway thank you for sharing that okay go on 
I, I think it's a very good, it's a very important point because, you know, imagine if someone challenges a man to a fight and you back down <laughs> or you, you tell yourself you can't back down because if I back down, I'm less of a man. Well, says who? You know, it's very important to understand that you think that you're less of a man and you think that somehow you're less masculine. That's not a universal transcendent value. Mm-hmm. Right. It is, it is um, socially constructed. Um, it is socially influenced. Um, it's not um, something that is biologically inherent in all men. Yeah, that's an important point to make. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the other, other things that um, where the differences are more subtle are where you find um, similarities across culture, but where the emphasis is slightly different, is, is greater in some cultures versus others. So, so one, one other example would be you find a great emphasis here in the U.S., an association between masculinities and sports, um, you know, uh, kind of very sport centric, um, being athletic. There's kind of a very big, uh, big component of what it means to be a man. And of course, if you're not as, as um, if you're not good at sports, that's you're somehow less of a man. Sometimes um, there was this is, this is not research that I did personally, but research has been done again on, on uh, uh, several Asian countries. Uh, and that really doesn't seem to be um, as important a value at all. Um, uh, what, what is very important, and this came out also in the research that I did in Singapore, it does show up in the U.S. too, but it is ultra important in many Asian cultures, is the ability to make money, mm. <laughs> to, be a, to be a breadwinner. It's very much tied to um, what it means to be a man. Um, one of the implications is that, you, you know, imagine... Uh, if you're if you're if you're out of a job, if you're um, in, in a less prestigious job, um, imagine if you're a man but you're a homemaker. Um, you know this notion of a stay-at-home dad, which is you know still not as common in the in the U.S. but becoming slightly more common, is, is very very rare and extremely stigmatized uh, in in many Asian cultures and Asian countries. So this is not that it's different. In, in, in terms of the meanings, but in difference in the emphasis. See what I mean? Of course, making money is, is, seems to be important to, in terms of what it means with men, it's ultra important, apparently, in, in some Asian cultures. Um, and correspondingly, this emphasis on sports is much less important. Mm. Right. And one thing that comes to mind, too, based on something you said a couple minutes ago about how for similarities between cultures is that being masculine is being not feminine so it seems that there's just the the other side of the coin here that there are always because let me back up and say this when we ask this question like what does it mean to be a man we are implying that this is a different question than what does it mean to be a human what does it mean to be a person so we're we're attributing like particularly masculine qualities here and I wonder, are we always attributing the opposite quality to femininity, or is it just a different set of qualities to femininity? What have you found? I know you don't study, you know, 
the psychology of femininity as much, but what have you found here? Like, is it always a sort of pair of opposites or just a different combination of qualities? It's such an interesting question. Um, and here again, there's this juncture between the way academics think about femininity and the way lay people think about femininity. So what research has shown is that lay people tend to think of masculinities as being the opposite of femininity or masculinity, plural, as, uh, singular, as being the opposite of femininity. And that's why to be masculine is to not be feminine, to avoid femininity. You know? um, uh, academics and, and scholars tend to um, kind of conceptualize masculinities and femininities as being um, independent of each other, as in, you know, you could be high on one and high on the other. Um, but that's not how lay people think about it. Mm. And I, I think that's very important that it's important to understand how lay people think about the kind of psychological constructs, academic study. I think it's more important actually to focus mm. how lay people think about um, these, these ideas. Mm. I can see why you say that. Because in a sense, the lay people are the majority. So yes. they represent the majority yeah. view and the cultural thrust, which is what it's yeah. based in anyway. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. So then now we know, like you said, on a cultural level, as well as on an in individual level, there are sometimes significant and often subtle differences in how we define masculinity. And that leads me to the question, to what degree does that translate to a variety of formulas for well-being in men? Yeah, that's, um, that's a good question. Uh, several decades ago, um, one of the uh, kind of a prominent theory of masculinities that emerged I think it provide a useful framework for understanding well-being for men. And you can even think about how that applies across different groups. Um, th this theory is known as the gender role strain paradigm. And it, it proposed that men experience stress or, you know, they got stresses, including mental health problems, and interpersonal problems, just bad stuff. Um, strain, stress, uh, in a variety of different circumstances. Um, I just, the, the theory has different aspects, but I'll just focus on two aspects of it. Um, and so paradoxically, men experience uh, stress when they um, fail to live up to uh, what they perceive to be societal expectations of what it means to be a man. But, and there's the paradox here is, they also experience stress when they conform, or I would say overconform, mm. societal expectations. So it, it feels a little bit like a catch twenty two situations mm. where um, you know hits you win and tails you lose, uh, mm. hits you lose and tails you lose. Tails you lose, so, right? Yeah, both ways right. you lose because mm. you conform, you try, you, you, know, you try really hard to be. Uh, what a man is supposed to be, and that's problematic in many ways. I can talk about, I can give examples later, but of course, if you depart from that, you might experience the stress of not living up to those expectations. Mm. Um, I think that that is a useful framework to apply because um, the, the, same, the, the same principles apply, apply across cultures. 
Because even if the meanings of what it means to be a man differs, that idea that when you fail to live up to societal expectations, whatever the expectations are, right? In one culture, it could be sports, and the other one, it could be money. But either way, you're failing to live up to those expectations. That can be stressful. Uh, and and if you um, you know um, if you overconform, you know, too strongly to to these societal expectations, you know, like try to be a breadwinner and make a lot of money, or trying to be, um, you know, uh, an athlete, or you know, um, become obsessed with physicality, that's also problematic. It makes perfect sense, and what an interesting reflection, because. Hmm. It's almost it's almost like to me I'm I'm relating to it on a personal level and I'm thinking about how what what do I conform to? What do I conform to in terms of what it means to be a man in my culture? And it, I would honestly say that in many ways I have conformed in that I've been athletic and that I'm the provider of my family. Right. And yet I see how but in a way I've kind of done it in my own way. Yeah. And that's been very important for me. I, I have to actually am thinking of the just the concept of individuation as yeah, Carl Jung yeah. described it. Yeah, yeah. And I loved the way that he would describe the the sort of general the archetypes of the psyche as being like body parts. And we all have, and well, not everybody, but most of us have a nose and two eyes and teeth right. and hands. So we all have these organs, but they're all unique. And so in the same way, we can kind of live out um, life paths that have been lived before, mm-hmm. but we have to do it in our own unique way, in, a, in an individualized way that feels authentic if it's going to be satisfying. And I think some people follow it in a way where they don't make it their own. Yeah. So those are, yeah. those are the reflections yeah. that came up in response yeah. here. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a really uh, that's a good point. Um, this this notion of you know forging your own path. Yeah, I, you know I, I realized that what I just said earlier made, painted a very bleak picture of what it means to be man. You know, heads you lose, tails you lose. And maybe I should offer you know um, my thinking on how do you get out of this conundrum. Um, and I think the the solution is gender consciousness, like a critical consciousness of what it means to be a man that once you come to a realization that there are these expectations, but that I don't have to live up to those expectations. Um, and that if I live up to those expectations, uh, you know, too much, it's, it's actually a problem for me. I also recognize that once I depart from these expectations, I might get pushback or um, social disapproval from others, right? But recognizing that, um, you know, I don't have to live up to those expectations. Ironically, um, shields me from that, from the negative effects of that social disapproval, right? Um, so, you know, um, let, let me, so I, I call it being secure in your masculinity. And I'll give you one very practical example, you know, that's from my own personal life. Um, I, I, you know, my family has two cars at home. My wife drives the larger car. I drive the smaller car. My car is red and it's smaller. Uh, and I once had a friend who came over and, you know, and, and uh, 
we would just they look at you know she looked at the cars and she um asked she asked me which car i drove and i said i drove that and i pointed to the smaller car red smaller car and she said what you drive this car (laughs) that's your car and i could tell from that sort of mocking tone that um she was saying you know you should have been a wife you should go on driving the bigger car you know and i mean (laughs) i think a lot of that She's just, there was no mention of masculinity here, but I think the subtext is there. Subtext. Right? Man drives bigger cars, you know. Um, and I call that, so again, if, if I have no sense of, con- uh, I, I don't have that consciousness of my, my gender, if I'm not thinking about these issues, I'm going to react negatively to that, right? Because someone has just called me out as being not masculine enough, even though that, that's the subtext. I responded by laughing. And say, you know what? I'm actually pretty secure in my masculinity. So I named the gender subtext there, and I said, I'm good. You know, I don't my my masculinity, my sense of what it means to be a man is not going to be tied to that car. And I kind of made it known. So in a way, that shields me from that social disapproval. There was social disapproval. I was not living up to those standards, but I I'm letting it known. And I'm telling, I'm telling myself, and I'm telling the other person, I don't care. It's, it's okay. Beautiful. Yes. Well, this, this raises an interesting question and <clears throat> I'm kind of feeling sensitive to the fact that it could come across as more controversial than I mean it. Sure. But here's the question. We know that concepts of gender have been expanding and that we have been developing language to name new forms of gender identity that original, you know, the the language we previously had didn't include. So my question is, do you think there's any degree to which people have felt the need to identify either as like non-binary or as the opposite? You know, you know what I mean? A man biologically identifying as a female or identifying as non-binary, do you think that that has been fueled by the narrow nature and the rigid nature of, and the singular nature of the word masculinity and what that has come to mean? That's an interesting question. Uh, and I'll give, I'll give you the, uh, the researcher's answer, which is, I don't know. Um, uh, it, it is clear that there are there's been a rise in a number of people who um, do not identify as as female male or gender non-binary. Um, I don't have any empirical evidence in this, and it's something that I would want to dig in a little bit more. This is not my main area of research, although it's fascinating. My suspicion, and I could be wrong, I'd like to look into it. My hypothesis, I put it as hypothesis, not a fact, is that that's more um, common among individuals um, who uh, who were born biologically female than among individuals who were born biologically male. That's my hypothesis. Um, and again, this is I'm just basing my hypothesis on anecdotal um, mm. evidence. Mm-hmm. So it, it, you know, I, I don't want to say that, claim that as a fact. It's something I want to look into and see if that's borne out by the research. Right. Uh, I mean, if that's true, 
Um, that's an interesting question of why that might be the case. Um, and again, this is in a realm of speculation. Um, there, there's some. There's been some theorizing that um, men are more insecure about their gender than women are, and so in, in, and that's been even an entire theory that's been this, this, uh, developed to describe this, and it's called uh, the theory of precarious manhood. This idea that you know. You, you're always constantly having to prove that you're man, you're manly enough. Whereas you don't, it's not so common for women to be to have to be constantly proving that they're a woman enough. Right? Mm. You hear the phrase, "Are you man enough?" You know, uh, you don't you don't you don't hear the phrase, "Are you woman enough?" Right. Uh, so that's the notion of giving up your um, identity as a man seems could be potentially harder for individuals who are biologically born male than it is for individuals who are biologically born female. That's, that's again, my hypothesis. Mm. I have no empirical research on that, but you've uh, spurred a very, um, you, you posed a very interesting question that I think mm. hopefully in the years to come, um, these questions can be answered. Right, right. Hmm. When I, you know, when I was even like posing to the listeners and watchers to think of someone who is very masculine. Um, and I kind of was doing that in my own mind as well. I'm thinking now I'd be willing to bet money that very few people, if anybody, pictured a man dressed in drag walking fabulously down a runway. And what if what if we were to truly on a broad level embrace the plural term masculinities mm -hmm. to where what comes to mind when people think of someone who's very masculine is this just mosaic of images that includes you know tom brady and the drag queen and all depictions of masculinity that seem to be a, a theme that people embrace yeah, yeah. This is just that's what I'm thinking about right now, and and I just think that it would directly improve the mental health and well-being of many young men who are dealing with a sense of rejection. Like I think many people haven't done what you did so well in your example, which is no longer feel like they have to conform to the expectations. So. You know, I, I do think like th this research and, and what we're talking about has that very positive impact of, yep. I guess you could say validation or permission to be the type of man that you are, even if that doesn't quite fit stereotyped cultural depictions. Yeah, I agree with you. Mm -hmm. So let me, let me double check and see if. Yeah, so I guess I already I already posed the question, but I just wanted to kind of, I guess, encourage all of us who are listening to contemplate this even more. Given the level of diversity that there is among types of men, is there an equivalent level of diversity in 
what is required for well-being in various types of men and types of people and like are there different formulas i, I really don't know and, and you're I'm, I'm also asking for any further thoughts you have on this joel but I, I really don't know if there are just some universal principles that anyone can apply to enhance their mental health and well-being and to what degree that needs to be individualized based on individualizing factors. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, as probably no one formula to right. uh, mental health, mental health, you know, wait, well, mental health, positive mental health. Um, and I think many of the predictors of, of good mental health would um, apply to both women and men, mm -hmm. regardless of your um, masculinities. But, but I'll, just, I'll just mention one thing, which is that, um, and this is again research that my colleagues and I have done uh, to show that the more your uh, man's sense of masculinity is dependent, uh, uh, is, is, is connected to their self-worth, the poorer their mental health. And that, that we have found when we've done research. So in other words, if, if, if you're constantly ask checking and asking yourself, am I, am I manly enough? Uh, that if I'm not masculine enough, that somehow I'm a worthless person or somehow uh, you know, I'm, I'm less of a human being or my self-esteem takes a hit. So that your, your, your self-worth is contingent. In other words, your self-worth is contingent on how masculine you feel. That is uh, a predictor of poor mental health. Right? So, so part of what we encourage people to do is to not um, have your self-worth be dependent on your gender. Uh, actually, for that matter, to not be dependent on a whole variety of different things. Yeah. What would you say it should be dependent upon? Well, um, so there's this whole theory uh, of, that's called um, contingencies of self-worth, right? And, and so the idea is, is that there are people who uh, base their self-worth on a variety of different things. I said masculinity is one of them, but it also could be something like uh, the people who, who self whose self-worth is dependent on physical looks or their uh, academics, you know, how well you're doing the studies or your work. And I think you know, pretty much um, none of them are positive <laughs> because um, if you're, I think the, the, the research shows that if your self-worth is very strongly dependent on this one thing, then uh, it rises and falls uh, depending, depending on how well you do in that particular domain, right? I mean, an right? example would be you know, you do well, if your self-worth depends on your academics, you do well in your studies, you're happy, you feel good about yourself and you do badly, you know, self-worth tanks. Um, so, so ultimately, you know, um, not to have your self-worth be dependent on anything, it would be the greatest of you. Sort of unconditional self-worth. Yeah, un un unconditional self-regard. Way to think about it. And of course, that's easier said than done. Uh, you know, we're like, how do you do that? Well, um, 
like, yeah, I can go into, and that's something that someone, you know, it's best to work with a therapist to, to work that out because I know it's not something that you can change overnight. If your self-worth is tied to one particular thing, you can't just like snap out of it and change. Right. Uh, but just maybe just one practical thing to do, uh, which is that it's very hard to just tell yourself, oh, I'm not going to be attached to this thing anymore. Um, it's, it's far easier to be able to uh, appreciate a broader things in life as a way to detach yourself from one particular thing. So for, for people who self-worth are very much tied to one thing, they become obsessed, the whole life revolves around that one thing. Uh, and, and part of the way to unwind yourself from that is to develop more hobbies, have more interests, talk to more people, you know, have more areas of interest you know, to detach yourself from that one thing. Hmm. That makes sense. So it's, I'm interpreting that as instead of kind of turning your focus to how can I detach myself from this one thing, just making the orientation more, what else can I, you know, focus upon in my life? Yeah. And, and are you saying as you develop other hobbies and talk to other people and have new experiences that you're kind of spreading out what your self-worth is contingent upon or more that you're just like, taking attention off of that obsession. Yeah, it's a little bit of both. You know, we, if you spread yourself out, you, you, you're you sort of, in a way, you know, not, no longer putting all your eggs in one basket and saying, this is where, this is where I make my stand uh, and taking the focus away from that one thing. Yeah. Mm. Yes, I, I, uh, I like this. And, and just this idea of contingencies of self, self-worth. I think that's one of the most important reflections to have yeah when we're self-reflecting yeah ask essentially what is my self-esteem depend upon what is, yeah. are the contingencies of my self-worth yeah sometimes i've heard the definition of self-esteem as your evaluation of your own self-worth and so then yeah. the question is what are you evaluating what exactly you evaluating? yeah yeah, yeah. Mm. you 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 know sometimes you know the way you know what your self-worth is, is contingent on comes not when something is going well, mm. if you're happy, right? You're happy. You don't typically think about this, but when something goes bad, mm. um, you know, when, when something tanks and all of a sudden you're completely devastated mm. or, you know, maybe it, it, it wasn't even something that was really bad that happened. It was just, um, you know, a, a minor setback and, and you have this disproportionate reaction and people around you are like, what's going on? Like, why, why are you reacting so strongly? That's often a sign that uh, they've hit, you know, some you've hit a raw nerve in you, and that you've got something that your self-worth is contingent. Great point. I think it is very easy to overlook that my self-worth is contingent upon things that are already going well. I, I yeah. totally overlooked that. But then yeah, That's I think yeah. I'm sure many people can relate too. I'm just thinking of examples being outperformed in a sport yeah. and being just devastated, bugged yeah. by that for the rest of the day. Yeah. Yeah. Or big stuff like losing your job, of course. And yeah, yeah. that's hmm, fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. You, so somewhat related to masculinities and also, you know, we're just very organically steering ourselves into a conversation about positive psychology and sure. health in general. Yeah. So, I know you've focused particularly on 
the well-being of the Asian and Asian American population. Right. So I'm curious to know what your findings have been and yeah. if there are any cultural differences on this level too, in the same way we compared yeah. masculinity among different culture, are there different important sure. factors for mental health across cultures? Yeah, yeah, I can definitely um, talk to that. Um, I mean, I can just summarize some of the most important findings that I found, um, or, or maybe the most, some of the more interesting, because not all the findings are that interesting, but some are. Um, a few things. Uh, the first, which I think is kind of important to note, is that overall, the uh, I'm just going to focus on suicide, the uh, suicide rates for Asian Americans in, in the U.S. is actually lower than that of the general population, lower than that of white Americans. It's a, and it's a very fascinating uh, finding because you find um, very high suicide rates in Asian countries. Um, uh, and uh, higher um, than what you will find in the sometimes in Asian American population. Uh, so, so that's one thing. So I, I kind of always don't want to over sensationalize um, and to, okay, why um, suicide rates are lower among Asian Americans. I, I can talk about that if you're if interested. It's all in the realm of speculation, but I have some hypotheses. Um, but that's one finding. A couple of other things that might be uh, interesting to note, um, and this has been talked about quite a bit in the literature, that um, uh, shame, culturally shame is um, uh, a, a rather salient feature for why uh, a lot of uh, people of Asian descent consider suicide. And that's something I've done that found that um, this notion of shame, having a lot of shame, is associated with um, uh, intentions to kill yourself, and suicide ideation. And, and here, the, the, the cultural components to shame too, uh, where in Asian cultures, shame, um, two types of shame, outdated, well, sorry, even three types of shame are slightly more culturally salient. One is the shame of someone judging you. So not just that you failed to do something on your own, but that the knowledge that others think that you screwed up is, is really bad. The second is that you've done something that brought shame to your family. So not, not just that you screwed up, but you've tainted your family's reputation. And the third is, is, is even more, uh, I would say, probably the least, probably the, the, the least relevant in Western cultures is more culturally unique is the shame of someone close to you, but usually a family member screwing up. So you didn't do anything bad yourself, but one of your family members, perhaps a child, um, did something really bad and it brings you, it, it, you, you vicariously experience a lot of shame, right? Um, but uh, anyway, these types of shames, these types of experience of shame, um, are uh, potentially uh, predictors of suicide ideation in Asian American cultures. A um, couple other things I'll mention. One is that um, even though the suicide rate is lower generally for Asian Americans, um, so is the help-seeking rate uh, when Asian Americans experience um, suicide ideation that's been found in the general population as well as in the college students. So you have an Asian American who's experiencing 
suicide um, ideation, you know, thinking about killing yourself, there is a lower likelihood of seeking help as compared to, say, a, a white American who is similarly experiencing that kind of ideation. It seems counterintuitive to me that that that's true, that their help-seeking behavior is lower, yet their suicide rate is also lower. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and by here, I want to make it clear, I'm referring to psychological help-seeking. Um, so, you know, perhaps seeing a mental health professional uh, that's always been, often been stigmatized in, in many Asian cultures. Yeah. Uh, mm. I'll just mention two more things and then I've done. So uh, one study that I did looking at um, Asian American college students who, and everyone in that study was seriously thinking of killing themselves or had been thinking of killing themselves over the past one year. Um, and uh, the number one reason, one, one, one factor that was um, going on in their life was the family stressors. Uh, well, it's those stressors were, were family problems. So, and that's less, that's not the, the top factor among uh, college students in general, but those who are thinking of killing themselves. So family issues, um, uh, and number two, I don't remember correctly, was academics. So family and academics were, were big issues that were associated with Asian American college students seriously thinking of killing themselves. And that's a little bit different uh, for other white students. Interesting. Um, the last fact that I'll mention is, um, this is not published yet, uh, but research that, I, that I've uh, completed very rather recently, where I, you know, I, I did a deep dive into um, suicide notes written by Asian Americans, um, Asian American Pacific Islanders who killed themselves. So this, everyone in that sample was had died by suicide. And, but we had, uh, police reports summarizing their suicide letters of those who wrote um, suicide letters, notes, letters or notes. Not everybody, else, not everyone wrote notes, but among those who wrote notes, I analyzed their, their notes and the content of what they were saying. Um, it, it's, it's fascinating and at, at the same time, extremely morbid, of course. Uh, some, some conclusions I learned from that um, study was there is no single pattern in terms of um, you know, reasons people give for, for suicide uh, or descriptions of what to do, just a variety of different reasons. Some people have been thinking about suicide you know, for a long time, and for some, it was very impulsive. But the one thing that was interesting was that in um, you know, the most common theme across all the different suicide notes was a very high proportion of the um, Asian American Pacific Islanders in their notes uh, apologized or asked for forgiveness, typically from their loved ones, like family members, for their suicide. It was very, very poignant. Uh, and and um, I think this is both interesting as well as provides some room for interventions uh, because. You, one could argue that you know it's it's culturally salient and that there's a recognition that you've done some harm to your family, you know, by leaving, and that what you did was is going to cause a lot of harm. Uh, but it could also leave the room, uh, provide 
the opportunities to provide suicide prevention um, in, in the form of being able to help people, help Asian Americans uh, who are feeling suicidal recognize how much their family members are going to be hurt and miss them and want them to be around and can't bear to see them leave. And that could potentially be a protective factor. So even that was showing up in the, those, those ambivalence and regrets, even in those letters, even as they kill themselves. I've given you a lot. <laughs> yeah, but it's all just relevant and makes me so sad. Just I'm yeah. just feeling a lot of sadness right now thinking about that and I imagine that <clears throat> helping a suicidal person recognize that this could devastate their family can be very powerful indeed and and to do that without instilling guilt I imagine is requires tremendous skill but you are actually catching them before they've done the act so guilt isn't necessarily implied and right. you know so and and so am i understanding you right that you didn't necessarily find um family to be as much of an of a related factor to suicidality in other demographics oops i'm sorry no Let's try to, okay, yeah, um, that's, um, it, I, it's not that it was not a related factor. I think family problems are always um, a predictor of suicide um, ideation. It was just um, compared to other research and college students, it was not the, the, the most mm -hmm. uh, salient factor. So it was kind of number one on the list of um, Asian American college students who were seriously killing themselves. That was the number one. Uh, problem they have in their lives hmm. did you this is a personal question but was there anything in your personal life that made you particularly interested in the psychology of suicidality in asian and asian yeah, no, I, I i often get asked this question uh short answer is actually no uh, so you know some people would ask you know did i have a family member you know, we died by suicide, or was it you know, something I personally experienced uh, early in my life? Um, and no, um, this this was, you know, many reasons why I, I became interested in this area. Uh, but there's something very consequential about suicide that I think was disturbing and fascinating to me at the same time. It's the one outcome that you can't reverse, right? Think about it. Um, it's in, in many of the, when we think of mental health, there are many other mental health concerns that you can treat, um, but in a sense one can never treat a suicide. You can work on prevention, but you can't really treat a suicide because that's a, a irreversible decision. I, I think that nature of it and how consequential it is but it was something that I was very drawn to to want to better understand. Yes, well, thank you. Honestly, I think it's interesting with suicide too. I think about this with suicide or with 
just mass shootings and things like that. Hard to know. It's it's like we can't count how many people didn't do it. You can watch trends change and have a sense that you're improving things because fewer people committed suicide than last year and things like that. But ultimately there's no like statistic for a person who didn't ever go there. Right. So it's like, it's hard to calculate just how positive of an impact someone like you in this research is having. So I, I really do just thank you. And I think so many people are incredibly grateful for people like you who are systematically understanding the psychological factors contributing to suicidality. Uh, Nick, I just wanted you to know I might have to leave in a couple of minutes so we might have to speed up the process. Totally. No, 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 it's okay. I I appreciate your time. Well, let's, let's go into shame a little bit. I wasn't planning to go here, but everything you just brought up about shame, I think is pertinent. So in the little tiny bit of time that you have left, what would you say as guidance or what is known empirically about how a person can process shame, prevent becoming ashamed or overcome shame? Yeah, that's a good question. So what are the best explanations for shame and how it's different from guilt? that I've read is this, that guilt is about feeling bad about something you've done, whereas shame is an assault on yourself. So you're feeling bad about yourself. And it's a very painful experience of like my my entire self is tainted. Guilt is actually not necessarily a bad thing. I, I, I would argue it's actually adaptive in many ways. Guilt keeps us from doing a lot of bad things. <laughs> And guilt sometimes leads us to restoration of the bad things we've done, right? Kind of restoring a relationship or restitution. It's not always bad. Shame, on the other hand, um, research has shown, is, tends to be associated with a lot more negative outcomes. Um, and shame is often associated with this feeling of you want to shrink, you want to disappear. Have you ever had the experience of like, I wish the ground would open up and swallow me up and just I want to just run away and disappear? That's often kind of what, what comes up for shame. Uh, and if you think about it, this notion of wanting to disappear, wanting to just shrivel up, the ultimate path you could take is suicide, right? It's why you can see that connection there. Um, and, and I would say that, and it's a very simple thing, but the, the first path, the first step to healing from shame is simply to acknowledge it. Because I think a lot of people can't, if, don't even realize that they're experiencing shame. And so very often when you're doing work with a therapist, the, the, what the therapist does is to name what you're feeling and what you're experiencing is shame. So paradoxically, I think when, you re, when you're able to put a name to your experience, to name it, to acknowledge it, to say that's what I'm experiencing, and then, then the shame tend, uh, would slowly over time lose its power. If not, it becomes this mysterious thing that's lurking around the back and the back that you, you, you seem to feel like you want to show up, you seem to feel like something's wrong, but you're not able to grasp what exactly you're experiencing. That's extremely helpful. Thank you. Yeah. 
and I'll honor your time. I know you need to go. So I'm sure I'm speaking on behalf of everyone who has listened to this entire conversation. Your insight has been valuable. And thank you for being a guest on the Psychology Is podcast. And yeah, just thought-provoking conversation. Oh, you're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Well, I'm glad to be connected. And I'll reach out to you again, I'm sure, soon to let you know when this is published and possibly for other reasons too. I'm happy to be connected. Yeah, Yeah, it'd be great if you could uh, send me the... uh, yeah, if, if I, I wouldn't mind listening to whatever you get done. Um, okay, perfect. I apologize for the um, uh, the phone. I knew that would happen. I was trying to find a way to um, unhook my phone, and it sort of made things worse. And so I put the phone back, and instead of ringing the moment, I put it back. So I was just I, no, no problem at all. Like yeah. we just, you know, we we got a chance to talk to a professor in his office, so. They're going to get some phone calls and books in the backgrounds. It's part of the brand today. So yeah. it worked out. No problem at all. Thank you again. All right. Yeah. You take care. Bye-bye. You too. Bye. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I sure did. Reflections on this idea of masculinities as a plural word and acknowledging a much greater variety of what it can mean to be a man. And if you do not find yourself living out a widely embraced, culturally embraced depiction of masculinity, then maybe letting go of the expectations that you ever needed to could be really beneficial. And like, like Joel shared, could help you just kind of deflect the subtext, the implications that you're not manly in this moment. I also love that term, Joe brought in precarious manhood. I think that's really important to consider and and feel that when it's happening, that your manhood is kind of always in question. And if you're not answering for your manhood at every given moment, then you're made to feel less than and that your your self-worth suffers because of it. So I hope that all of this has been thought-provoking. I also wanted to just share, I haven't done this before, where I talk by myself at the end of a podcast, but I appreciate you who's listening and watching right now. So I just wanted to say a little bit more about shame. Dr. Wong was on campus at Indiana University today and he had to go. So I wanted to pick up from where he left off related to shame and just emphasize, highlight and elaborate emphasizing that distinction between shame and guilt and how indeed guilt is feeling bad about something you did. Guilt is I messed up. Shame is feeling bad about who you are, defining who you are by what you did or what you experienced, and then feeling bad about who you are because of it. And that is antithetical to well-being. Brene Brown is, has contributed so much on what we know about shame. And she likes to say that shame festers in the dark and that to overcome shame, there's these three C's, courage to talk about it, compassion from others and for yourself and connection, courage, compassion, and connection. And 
just right before I let you go, as if I need to let you go. Um, I just wanted to share this story that I think is really powerful related to guilt and shame. And so I've mentioned on the podcast before that I work in a jail. I get to meet people and get to know them really well who are, who are serving time. And there was a woman that I knew really well, had been in there for several months and then got out and then came back in. There's a couple of those in and outs. And then she had a heroin addiction. She got out the conditions. So let me back up. She, she was pregnant. She got out of jail, I think around six months pregnant. The conditions of her probation were that if you test dirty, if you use heroin again, you will lose the baby. Child Protective Services will take the baby. About three or four months later, she came back into the jail. And when we locked eyes, I just knew exactly what happened. And she knew that I knew that. And I've never seen someone so ashamed of themselves. And fortunately, it was a group setting and we all got to be supportive and show compassion. And, and her and I were in conversation. And she said, I'm such a fuck up. That's what she said. And what we had to do was shift that to I fucked up because she fucked up. But that doesn't mean that she is a fuck up. That doesn't mean that who she is as a person is somehow defected or defective. When that shift was made, she felt guilty instead of ashamed. Because guilt is, I fucked up. And shame is, I am a fuck up. So (laughs) I know I'm just dropping F-bombs on me out of nowhere here at the end of the podcast. But I share this because I think it's a powerful story. And it turned out like she, as far as I know, started doing much, much better from that point on. Shame, I think, would have sabotaged her recovery. Guilt is based on our conscience. It's us being morally accountable to ourselves. But we can understand that our behavior is often caused by factors that are outside of our control or that are very difficult to control. And so when you begin to understand, you know, why someone has done what they've done or why you've done what you've done, and you can point out the factors in your past that shaped you into the person who would do something like that, you begin to forgive yourself or forgive the person and you feel a release from shame even if you still feel guilty it allows you when you're no longer ashamed of yourself to learn from the things that you feel guilty about and to maintain a loving relationship with yourself one that will propel you on the path of transformation and growth so hopefully this has been a valuable encore of the podcast today and as always thank you for tuning in until next time